Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. What's your favorite thing to do with ripe summer tomatoes? We're big on salads and tomato sandwiches over here. Maybe a thick-sliced, toasty bruschetta? Or how about a rustic tomato tart? Tomatoes are incredibly complex fruits, as you'll hear coming up. But cooking with them doesn't have to be. Keep it simple and let those summer tomatoes shine in whatever you make. Ahead on Seasoned, we're going to talk to a horticultural scientist from the University of Florida about his mission to sequence the genomes of hundreds of tomato varieties in order to breed flavor back into a crop that's been bred for size and sturdiness since the Second World War. And Anthony D'Angelo, chef and owner of Tony D's in New London, shares a family recipe handed down from his grandfather. What's it called? (laughs) Tony's Tomatoes, of course. But first, meet Trout and Jennifer Gaskins. They're the husband and wife organic tomato farmers behind Farming 101 in Newtown, Connecticut. Plum visited the farm recently to talk with Trout and Jennifer about their work and to tour the farm at the height of tomato season. How long have you guys been out here growing tomatoes now? Uh, This is our 14th summer growing tomatoes here in Newtown. How much has changed from year one to now? It's very different. We now have three seasonal high tunnels that we grow in. Also, 2008 was the last year we had typical weather for uh, where we live. We're having much more erratic weather, hotter hots, colder colds. The rain doesn't come exactly the way it used to. We'll have dry summers and wet summers just like we used to, but it's just more intense and um, it comes more erratically. Do the tomatoes like the rain or do they dislike the rain? Well, too much rain is not a good thing. And that's why we like the seasonal high tunnels. We can control that. You're saying the high tunnels, just for descriptive purposes. What is, I'm, I'm going to take a walk back there and see them too, but what is a high tunnel and how does that change the growing? It looks like a greenhouse, but it's just plastic and we grow the tomatoes in the ground. And so all of that's the same, but uh, we can keep the rain off. There's a little more heat from the the high tunnel and the plants love the warmer weather. They need it to develop and it gives us just a longer season. So we have tomatoes by mid-June. That's pretty good. I mean, not everybody has them that soon. Not, I, mean, I think not, of not sun he, golds. Yeah, yeah, not here. I mean, I think of getting those sun golds, those little bright, delicious, sweet, yeah. little yellowish, orangish tomatoes. I think of those as kind of the first ones that show up. and They are. Yeah, and they're amazing and they're delicious. And you, like, to me, that means summer when those guys start showing up. And, exactly. But I don't think of them until, you know, what, July-ish? Yeah. You know? July 4th is a good time to start yeah. looking. Yeah. Around here. Wow. It depends on Mother Nature, because we can start planting a month earlier in the seasonal high tunnels. But if we have colder evenings before before the frost season ends, it could affect it. But then, uh, yeah, people think summertime starts Memorial Day, and that's when they should have tomatoes. <laughs> that's too <okay. laughs> Uh-uh. <laughs> Doesn't quite work like that. I mean, do you have people asking you early, like, hey. Oh, yes, Memorial Weekend. Yeah. Yep. Our loyal customers are like, you know, we're excited. We know the farmer's market's open, but we're waiting for the tomato lady to be there. 
<laughs> now, Jen, is that the new nickname? Are you the tomato lady? Is that your... That is actually my name in some chef's cell phones. They actually just say... The tomato lady. Tomato lady. Yes. That's great. So. <laughs> How many different varieties of tomatoes do we have out in the field right now? We have over 40 varieties this year. During the winter months, we kind of comb through catalogs um, and look at what's grown well for us, what our customers and clients like, but also searching for those new ones that just aren't readily available. So we always like to find anything but that big red round typical tomato. Yeah, like the, some of those little fun different color ones, the green ones that have the purple blotches on them. And yeah, or that, those the, are a pale fuzzy one called a garden peach. And when people hold it, they're like, it's fuzzy like a peach. So it's just, it really surprises people. <laughs> wow. With, and they all have different flavors too. And by new, we mean new to us. We're combing around for heirloom tomatoes we haven't tried before. You guys are, are you certified organic? Do you grow organically? How does that work? Because we talk a lot about that on this show about how sometimes it's hard for your local farmer down the street to get a certification. It costs so much money. Is it worth it? For us, it is. So we're a small three-acre farm. We cultivate on two acres. And we do about 2,000 tomato plants is what we specialize in with the flowers and okra. Hold on. 2,000 tomato plants. That's insane. It's just you guys. (laughs) It is insane. (laughs) It's the two of you. And how? How can you possibly comb all the plants in one day? We don't do them all in one day, but it's, you know, before the sun comes up, we start thinking about our day planning it just like any other farmer um, and prioritize what needs to be done. We plan the best we can, but uh, Mother Nature and just life in general always throws us curveballs. So, uh, so yeah, sometimes there you know, are split ones here or there. We don't get to it, but that's part of the farm life, too. But the organic part, you said it does matter to you guys. It does. It matters to our customers and clients, too, especially at the farmer's markets. They like to know that there is uh, fewer chemicals being applied, and when we pick, it's like we pick them and pack them. So they're getting it fresh from our field. It means something to us because we're being proper stewards to the land as well. The certification, it is a lot of paperwork, bookkeeping, and logging everything you do every day. But part of that helps us in future planning too. We have to monitor the weather, the humidity, the temperatures, what we put into the soil from nutrients and amendments and then have annual inspections. So they do come and inspect every year as well. But we take pride in what we do, and that's we're you know happy to say we are certified organic. So 2,000 tomato plants, Trout, do you find people are more pulled toward a certain variety? Like, or they, do they like the funny, fuzzy ones and the strange ones? Each tomato will have a fan. As Jennifer said, every year we, we call some out and we introduce some new ones. And so the ones that didn't uh, win anyone over tend to fall by the wayside and maybe we'll bring them back another time. Yeah, some come and go. Some of my favorites have gone. Tell me one that you like that isn't oh, around. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to think. Well, there was, a, there was an orange paste tomato that I once liked. I thought was wonderful, but it didn't go over so well with other people. They, it might be the name. Yeah. Orange paste. <laughs> well, terrible. I, I, well, I, it might. Orange banana paste. It was called orange banana paste. Yeah. So yeah, they didn't work too well, <laughs> but I loved it. Typically, uh, they ask for recommendations, and we we share our favorites with them. And and it does vary week to week. So actually, one tomato will peak, you know, early in the season, and then other varieties later in the season. And each variety will also change in flavor from week to week too, depending on the weather. Wow. Hot, humid, or hot, dry have different flavors than a cold, wet, or cold, dry summer. So it does vary year to year. 
And now you guys also send tomatoes where you go small restaurants across you know the state. You help those guys out. You bring in great tomatoes for them. Yes. We actually really enjoy working with the smaller restaurants, and um, they're looking for those unique varieties for a, a specialty menu item. So they'll give you guys a call and say, hey, can you get me a banana, yellow, orange, purple paste zebra tomato? Hey, tomato lady, those medium round browns were rocking last week. Hey, tomato lady. Hook us up. <laughs> hey, tomato lady. Trout and Jennifer took me for a quick tour of their fields. There are three large hoop houses, or high tunnels, covering the ground. On the day I visited, they were in the process of crop rotation. They do this for their organic certification and because it's really good for the soil. Tomatoes are their main crop, but they also grow flowers, Asian greens, and okra, a southern favorite that Trout grew up eating, and so did I. We'll get to a few pro tips for backyard gardeners in just a second. But with those high tunnels and hoop houses, I was curious to know how long their tomato season lasts. We'll have tomatoes over a 10-week, 12-week period. And they all come in different stages. But uh, mid-August, August in general, is a great month for tomatoes. Great. Yeah, that's usually when everyone's on vacation, too. <laughs> <laughs> and even people that have home gardens, their tomatoes are ripening as they're on vacation. Oh but, uh, yeah, but yeah, usually mid-August is peak tomato time. And it's also some of the best weather that we have here in Connecticut, too. You guys are professionals at this. Like, you've got this down to a science what about a home gardener? What's something you could tell them that would help them be more proficient at growing delicious tomatoes here in Connecticut? What I always tell people at the farmer's market when they're like, oh, I'd love to start a garden. You know, what should I grow? I always just say, grow what you love to eat and what you love to have around you. So whatever flowers, um, whatever vegetables, and just give it a try. We have been doing this 14 years, but we learn something new every year. One of the things that I recommend is not overwatering. It prevents the tomatoes from splitting. Tomatoes are a vine, and so you just have to give them something to grow and keep them trained on the trellis. Interesting. These spindles of, of just twine go to the ground, tie to the base of the tomato plant, and then they grow up it. Yes, and they're um, actually spaced very close together, which means that we have to require excessive pruning to keep airflow going through as well. So for home growers, the spacing is great too. The more space you have, um, the more airflow, the healthier the plants can stay as well. That's a really good tip to know, actually, because I wouldn't have even thought about that. So the, there needs to be airflow in between the tomatoes. That's right. That, that keeps them from uh, staying too wet or um, sharing diseases they might pick up. Uh, let's talk about pruning for a second, because I know some people, they prune... You know, my father-in-law talks about cutting the suckers off at the ends. When it comes to these, I mean, do you guys prune them as they grow taller? Or? We prune them their whole lives. Is it because that tomato plant will put more energy towards other parts of the plant? That's right. You want to stay focused on what you need, and you just need the main vine and the, the leaves that support the photosynthesis and the tomatoes. Yeah, especially when the leaves look really healthy, too. If the plant is six feet tall, the bottom two feet of it, those leaves at the bottom really aren't taking as much of the sun in as those top leaves. And those are more susceptible to the diseases. So it's once those bottom leaves start turning a little bit of yellow or brown, we always recommend just taking those leaves off as well, not just the suckers. That's great advice right there. Trout, what's your favorite tomato variety this year? Well, this year is still unfolding. So... I haven't had my favorite tomato yet, but my favorite tomato, sandwich tomato, is a Tiffin Mennonite. Tiffin Mennonite. 
Can you talk about the flavor of it? Like, how is it different from another tomato? Oh, it's just a full, it's that tomato that you want to have on a BLT, a wonderful full body. Nice, deep colored tomato. Now, I have a green tomato, Aunt Ruby's Green, that is a wonderful sandwich tomato. But, um, you know, you have to be open to the green color. I'm open to it, for sure. (laughs) Jen, what's your favorite uh, tomato variety? This year, my favorite so far is the black cherry. The black cherry. Yes, there's actually some right behind. Oh, you. are there? Let me see, turn around. Here. You didn't even know that. I didn't know that. Let's see. Oh, look at these guys here. These are small. They're about the size of a ping pong ball. You know, a red kind of on the bottom, the top that gets a little darker. Is that right? It is. It's peaking this week, actually. I know you're holding the mic, but go for it. <laughs> wow, that's delicious. It has a little chew to it. It does. In a good way, in yep. a good way. It has more more meat where the sun golds, that was behind you, in front of you are the sun golds. Those are the smaller bright orange. Um, that's a hybrid tomatoes. The one you just had is an heirloom. These hybrids have a thicker skin. The plants are, are a little more disease and pest tolerant, but they are juicy where the one you just had has a little more meat yeah, to it. Yeah, it has more of a, yeah, that's what the meat yep. of the chew. That's it has the meat where the sun golds have the juice um, and sun golds tend to have the higher bricks content, the sugar content, uh-huh. um, the highest of most tomatoes. Black cherry, that's really delicious. When you mix up the various cherries, you can really tell the difference in the flavors yeah. between the tomatoes. That's the way I like them best in a salad. When there's a variety, you really go, wow, this one's a little smoky. This one's a little sweeter. Jennifer mentioned her current favorites, the black cherries, are heirloom tomatoes, and the sun golds are hybrids. I asked them to explain the difference between heirlooms and hybrids. Well, an heirloom tomato is a tomato that hasn't wasn't in commercial production. It was a tomato that some home grower had, and it was so delicious, he passed it along to his neighbor, and they grew it, and they kept planting the seeds from it, and it's just been passed down through the ages. It's one of the best that people kept planting. The seeds from the tomato, you can actually plant and grow the same, get the same tomato. With a hybrid, the seeds are not viable. You may get a, a tomato plant, but it won't be the same plant. So, Trout, this is, a, I guess it's definitely a personal opinion sort of question. But Subjective. in your brain, yeah, but in your brain, what makes a delicious tomato? It's about the meat, it's about the right density. The skin has to be tender, not too tough. It's a combination of several things all at one time. Is there anything on the tomato itself that makes a bad tomato? When you taste it, you're like, this is not good. No one likes a mealy tomato. That's right. No one likes an underripe tomato. And you see a lot of those in the grocery stores. You certainly do. And I think the easiest way, I think, to tell if it's underripe, when you slice it, if the center of it is white, it's no good. The tomato should look, when you cut into it, the juice should cling to the surface of the uh, the slice, and you should just have something that's just radiantly beautiful. (laughs) And, oh, there's a wonderful aroma in a fresh-cut tomato. Jen, what about you? Is there anything... You can point out that says this is what a delicious, perfect tomato should have or look like. Or Everyone has a different flavor and a different consistency that they like, which makes it unique. It's kind of like wines. If it's dripping off your, you know, the chin, that flavor just, it just says summer and it reminds you of, of a kid. The memories that you have as your childhood. I know you guys at some point in time in your life have just eaten a tomato like an apple out there, haven't you? Almost every day. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, we appreciate tomato season. We eat our fill during tomato season. Now, why tomatoes, though? I don't think we ever talked about that. Oh, you know, there's nothing like a summer tomato. It's, it's the king of the garden. Queen of the garden. <laughs> oh, it's the head person of the garden. It is. <laughs> it's attached, I think, to the memories of um, family gatherings and uh, the wonderful times you have uh, when the pressures are off and uh, people are just enjoying life and being together. It does. Maybe that's what makes a perfect tomato. If it brings back that memory, that makes a perfect tomato. Yeah, I think so. If it doesn't bring back that memory, throw it away. Well, and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we're building new memories for for children too that are trying our tomatoes because you know a lot of people that eat store-bought tomatoes don't think they like tomatoes and then they try a tomato fresh from the farm like this they're amazed the world is different the second you understand what a sun gold is finally and you taste it right in the beginning of summer it changes everything so if you don't like tomatoes go get a freshman from a farmer (laughs) see if you like it then that might change your mind a little bit Exactly. What makes the perfect tomato sandwich? Oh, boy, that, that's an individual taste, isn't it? And uh, I happen to make a, a BLT, okay. but I put a little mozzarella on it, a little pesto okay. from our own basil that I make. That combination with the, the bacon and tomato. Just delicious. Oh, it's just incredible. I'm a big fan of just a plain tomato sandwich. Like, give me a great, nice, thick tomato. Let me slice it. I like rye bread, which is delicious for a tomato sandwich. It is. But I'll also do white bread. Good salt, good pepper on there, fresh cracked pepper. Don't give me that pre-ground stuff. And then good mayonnaise. Like I want Duke's mayonnaise on there or something like that. What about you, Jen? What's your what's your tomato sandwich of choice? Or for a mayonnaise option, if you have a sourced locally eggs, you can make your own. I know you can make your own homemade mayo. I've never made well, mayo before. I know. You, I, I'm joking. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm kidding. kidding. <laughs> I was going to say, I challenge you now. <laughs> yeah, yes, of course you could. But if that, I mean, listen, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That Duke's mayonnaise, I grew up on that. That's the good stuff right there. <laughs> I'd say the BLT sandwich is ideal, but sometimes it can be hard to eat. It's not something that you can eat around other guests, perhaps, or okay. out in public. So I actually like a BLT salad. So we can actually use our cherry tomatoes, but you just chop it up. And instead of slices of bread, you toast the bread and you make croutons out of it. I love all of those. This is BLT a really salad. great idea. I did a small appetizer for years out of tomato the size of you know those, those black cherry ones. I would slice it, then I would take iceberg lettuce or leaf lettuce, and I'd chop it up really fine, chop up bacon in there, and I would toss it with a little bit of mayo, a little bit of dressing, and I'd stuff it inside the tomato and serve it as a bite. That was awesome. Well, you guys, this has been really fun, checking out these tomatoes and seeing this and seeing how much. I mean, this is the amount of growth like from you guys here is incredible. I don't know how you maintain all this. Thanks. We don't know how we do it either. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. You just heard from organic farmers Jennifer and Trout Gaskins. They own Farming 101 in Newtown and sell their gorgeous tomatoes at the Greenwich Farmer's Market on Saturdays. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break... We're about to drop a lot of tomato science on you. Marisol talks to Dr. Harry Klee. He's on a mission to breed flavor back into commercially grown tomatoes. We're trying to basically make up for 75 years of, of breeding, but it can be done. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. 
Dr. Harry Klee is a professor for the Department of Horticultural Sciences at the University of Florida. Much of Dr. Klee's career has been devoted to sequencing the genomes of more than 600 tomato varieties in order to breed flavor back into commercially grown tomatoes. In 2017, Dr. Klee led a team whose research on producing a tastier tomato was published in the journal Science, one of the top academic research journals in the world. Marisol spoke with him last week about his work and uh, that age-old tomato controversy. I just want you to set the record straight. Tomato, fruit or vegetable? Haha, well that's a great place to start. Botanically, it is most definitely a fruit. The Supreme Court over a hundred years ago said that it was a vegetable. <laughs> and it actually relates back to um, a customs case in which uh, a New York City uh, importer was suing the government because there were higher import taxes on vegetables than fruits. And just like that, the Supreme Court justices mm -hmm. would create this mishigas over this poor tomato's identity. And there's the tomato just wanting to be a tomato. But they're actually, they were right. I mean, in the sense that it's not like a strawberry or an apple. We don't use it the same way. We actually use it like a vegetable. And and the flavor profiles of the tomato are very different than most fruits. So from a practical point of view, they're right. From a botanical root view, they're totally idiots. <laughs> That's right. How many varieties of tomatoes are there currently in circulation in the year 2021? We have in our own lab characterized, I think, something over 700. But there are many more. I would say probably a couple of thousand. Now, many of those are wild tomatoes that have been collected from various places all the way from Peru up through Colombia, Ecuador, up into Central America. But in terms of things that people have grown over the last, let's say, 100 years, there's still probably 500 or more. That is a lot of different varieties. And I know we mentioned Supreme Court ruling aside, the tomato is very complex. But I wonder if you could tell us what makes a tomato so complex? We've spent uh, the last 20 years trying to understand what is flavor in a tomato. And if you look at the chemistry of the tomato, we can identify 30 or more different chemicals that all contribute to flavor. You start with sugars. It's sweet. And the sweeter, the better for the most part. There are acids that balance out the sugars. And then there are the chemicals that we've spent most of our time working on, which are the volatiles, the things that you can smell. When we talk about flavor, people tend to think of what's happening in your mouth. In our mouth, we have basically five different kinds of receptors, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami. So there's only five basic flavors that we get out of our mouth. The vast majority of the flavor, the variation in flavor, comes from the volatile chemicals. When you swallow volatiles, air is forced up into your nasal cavity where it reacts with receptors for all of these volatile chemicals. And it's smell. I mean, basically, it is smell uh, that really gives us the diversity of flavor. Think of the last time you had a cold. Or, or COVID, uh, and you couldn't smell. Right. All of the variability in the foods that we eat comes from smell. And so that's where the real complexity comes. And, and that's in large part why the tomato has, has gone so wrong 
it's complicated. We have lots of different chemicals and the breeders just basically throw their hands up and say, it's too complicated for us. We don't even know how to measure a lot of these chemicals, so we're not going to bother. Which explains a lot because I have a vivid recollection of being a child and not liking tomatoes. Mm -hmm. I had a vision of going to Pathmark, the grocery store, and tomatoes were wrapped in plastic. They came in like this little green carton and they were wrapped in plastic. And I remember smelling it and it smelled like nothing. And I I would tell my mother, you want me to eat something that smells like nothing, which is vastly different than my experience now. Now I go to my local grocery store. There are so many different varieties of tomatoes. Mm -hmm. I can get a grape tomato, an heirloom tomato, a plum tomato, and they look and they smell and they feel like actual tomatoes. Yes. Where did we go wrong or where was the transfer of tomatoes being incredibly bland to now, they're much more savory. I mean, mm-hmm. I, my mouth is watering thinking about the heirloom salad I will have when I get home. Well, you've asked a very complicated question. I'm a complicated human. So <laughs> we can start with the fact that it's really difficult and very subjective to characterize flavor. Fair. I would say at the heart of the problem is if you look at the supply chain, most growers are not rewarded for flavor. They're paid for how many pounds of round red objects they put in a box and they get weighed and that's how they get paid. So what has happened over the last, I would say since World War II, what the breeders have done is really in some ways phenomenal. They've increased the yields of tomatoes by 300% since World War II. And those tomatoes can be shipped, in your case, uh, in the wintertime, they're probably coming from Florida or Mexico. More and more, they're coming from Canada, actually, in greenhouses. But the breeders have given the growers exactly what they want. More yield, more disease resistance, greater shippability. That's why they're hard as a rock. They're picked when they're green and they're ripened artificially. That's not a big issue. A lot of people will say, oh my God, they've been treated artificially ripened. Well, I can tell you right now, 100% of your bananas that you buy in the store are also in the same way. <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. You've got this system where the breeders are giving the growers what they demand, which is higher yield. And there is no incentive for higher flavor. Mm. The the breeders have done a great job of doing exactly what their customer wants. Unfortunately, their customer is not you, it's the grower. Think of the tomato plant as a factory. It's taking sunlight, it's turning that sunlight into energy and sugars, and it's pumping those sugars into the fruit. As you increase the yield, as the plant is making more and more fruit, the plant basically can't keep up with it. So sugar is a great proxy for what's happened. If you look at old varieties of sugars, if you went out and got a brandy wine heirloom, the tomatoes that you're going to put in your salad tonight are probably, I would guess, at minimum of five to six percent sugar. And people like sugar. We are born. That's the one clear thing. We're born liking sugar. That is just innate in the human system. So more sugar is better. If you look at the commercial tomatoes that are coming from Florida or even even the ones from greenhouses, they're probably more like between three and 4% sugar. Oh, wow. That's just the nature of the beast. The, the varieties that have been selected that give us higher and higher yield, give us less and less flavor. You're diluting out the flavor with water. 
Wow. Now, I, I think that you've actually hit upon another really good point that I want to bring out. You said you're being exposed to better and better tomatoes. Those great tomatoes that you're getting are probably seasonal. And so you're only getting them because it's the peak of summer and, and they're accessible to you. And there are good tasting tomatoes out there in the market that you can get year round, but for the most part, the best tomatoes are coming from your farmer's markets or, or the stores that you go to are buying them seasonally. If you're willing, willing and able to pay for a good tasting tomato, it's accessible to you. Mm. It's not that easy to get sometimes in the year, but, but you can find a good tomato, but you're gonna pay five or $6 a pound. I'm more concerned about the people who don't have the luxury of spending that money for the premium product, you know, they're, they're saying, oh, tomatoes suck. Yeah, they don't. There's, there's no great shakes. And so they're making these conscious decisions that I'm not going to buy that product, which is incredibly healthy for you. Even the, the crappy tasting tomatoes have vitamins, minerals. They're good for you. They're a good food product and you should be eating them. So my goal really is yes you can get a really good tomato we've provided varieties for home gardeners that people rave about but i won't feel like i'm successful until you can walk into a walmart super center and see a really good tasting mm -hmm. tomato for two dollars a pound sure i like that because i i would agree with you on this show we've often talked about food deserts we've often mm -hmm. talked about what is available to the haves and the have-nots exactly. and you know i like to think that the state of connecticut is doing its best to create things like community gardens mm -hmm. instead of having to go buy a tomato maybe you learn how to grow one and now suddenly your your entire community has one yes but you bring up this very important point about taste and we've we've talked about how industry sort of robbed the tomato mm -hmm. of its taste and we talked about you know that's where we were for a good chunk of time. But I know that some of the work that you have done involves sequencing of genomes, mm -hmm. which is essentially bringing flavor back into the tomato. So what were some of the key re revelations that you came up with when you were sequencing tomatoes? And how is sequencing different than what industrial agriculture is doing? Because to me, it sounds like science yeah. versus a lot of people doing a lot of things to just churn out a product. DNA sequencing has gotten remarkably cheap over the last few years. That's why we can do all of these uh, sequences of COVID variants, for example. A few years ago, we kind of had this revelation. We had a collaborator who was a really good sequencer and said, I could sequence the entire genomes of these 350 varieties you're working with at that point and we could begin to understand the genetics of flavor. And once you understand the genetics of flavor, you have the ability to manipulate it through breeding. Uh, it's just the same as, as the Human Genome Project a decade or more ago. Once you uh, sequence one genome, you kind of get the reference for what's in our bodies. Once you get a thousand genomes, you can start to dissect and maybe look for rare disease genetic diseases, the more genomes you get, the more powerful that technology is. And it's the same with breeding. Once we understand, once we have availability of what the genome is, we can go back and look at, well, what did we lose in the last 70 years since World War II? So that's basically what we've done. We've gone in and we've dissected it to the level of 
here are the locations of the genes that control the synthesis of all of those chemicals that are contributing to flavor. And then we go back and we say, well, let's look at the modern varieties. And you can very clearly see that the modern varieties have lost. So there's a term that I have to, to introduce, and it's called alleles. Allele. Allele. A-L-L-E-L-E. Okay. Every tomato has basically the same number of genes, but the versions of those genes that it has are different. So the best analogy that I can come up with is think about eye color in humans. You have genes that control what color your eyes are. Some people have alleles of those genes, versions of those genes that give you blue eyes, brown eyes, hazel eyes, whatever. Once we know an important gene, we can then go back and say, well, which version of the gene does it have? The good version or the bad version? I mean, that's a simplification, but in terms of flavor, it's not a bad. I was going to say a fl more flavor or less flavor. More flavor, less flavor. Yeah, that's a better way to phrase it. We go through and we say, okay, here are 25 genes that are really important for flavor. And here's the good version and the bad version or the, the, the poor and the better version. And we can go through and we can just go run down a checklist and say the modern varieties have good, bad, bad, good. <laughs> so in that way, we were actually able to, um, to figure out what's missing from the modern varieties. And we use a consumer panel. So we have like a hundred people who come into our food science department and taste lots of different tomatoes. And they tell us how much they like them. So they rate each tomato that they taste on a scale. And then we can go through and we can say, well, these are the great tomatoes. These are the lousy tomatoes. And there's a whole range in between. What we can then do is just use real simple statistics to say what's in the good ones, what's in the bad ones, or what's not in the bad ones. And in that way, we can basically create a recipe a target for where we want to be to get a great tasting tomato. We know which ones that people like. We know the chemistry of flavor. We can go back and we can really dissect down to single chemicals, which ones are important for flavor. It's about 20 different volatile, 25 maybe different volatile chemicals, plus the sugars and the acids that derive flavor. So over the last 75 years, the breeders have lost a lot of good stuff, just randomly, not intentionally. They didn't intend to, set, to give you a tomato that tastes like cardboard, but, right, but right. they got there. But here we are. <laughs> well, so what we do is we take the modern variety that's got the great yield and the great shelf life, and we make a, a hybrid with some of these heirloom varieties that taste really good. So there's nothing unnatural about it. It's mm. all uh, done just by traditional breeding. But what we can do is we can recreate varieties that have the best of both worlds. So science really can produce mm -hmm. a better tomato. Yeah. It takes a while uh, because we're sorting out a lot of different things that have been lost. We're trying to basically make up for 75 years of, of breeding. Right. But it can be done. And, and with molecular biology, that is the genome sequences and the ability to, to test which, which allele the, the progeny have inherited, we can speed up the process immensely. 
but it's still a long process. When we're tasting a really good tomato, what compounds are we actually tasting? A bunch. I would say 50% of the flavor comes from sugars and acids. And again, we all like sugars. We don't all like acids. Uh, there's an interesting ethnic component to that. And it's, it's what your family, your parents did with the tomatoes when you were growing up influences what you like. In the Southwest, where you have a much higher Hispanic population, the average likability is for a tomato that's more acidic. Why? Because they use it in salsa. In the Northeast, you have less Hispanic population, more sort of Northern European. How do they use a tomato? Well, most of those people grew up using a tomato in a salad or on a sandwich. They tend to prefer a sweeter tomato. To get back to your question, you've got the sugars, you've got acids, you've got that sugar to acid balance, which is important, but varies with different populations. But then you have the volatiles. And the volatiles are really, again, where we think most of the action is. A wide range of volatiles, some of them on their own are not appealing, and some of them are quite appealing. One of the chemicals, for example, is uh, very floral. It smells like roses, actually. It's the major component of, of roses are like tomatoes. If you get a rose that actually has an aroma, you'll smell this one compound that's an important component of a tomato flavor. Too much of it by itself is bad. Too little is bad, but there's a sweet spot. Other chemicals by themselves, there's one, the, the classic one that I like to tell people about, there's one that if you smell it, the, the typical descriptor of it is smelly socks. <laughs> uh, Wait while I run to go find the tomato that yes. reckons smelly socks. <laughs> yes. Go for a run this morning and then take your socks off and smell them. And right. that's, a, that's an important component of tomato flavor. You know, it's because it's a small part right. it, and it's balanced by all these other 20 or more chemicals. So uh, it's, it's hard to describe exactly how each of these chemicals come together to give you the tomato flavor. It's really very unique. It sounds incredibly complex. I wonder, though, you mentioned earlier uh, GMOs. As a scientist, where do you stand on GMOs? Have they evolved at all in your perspective? I am very much pro-GMO with the proper cautions. I wouldn't want someone in their backyard or in their garage creating something that they could just turn around and sell. That clearly can't happen. There has to be a regulatory process in place. But I think that the regulatory process is a little too onerous today. The reality is that we, unless you live on a desert island, it's almost impossible for you not to be eating GMOs. We've been eating them for 25 years, and there is not a single case of any single human being suffering any negative consequences as a result of eating them. People can justifiably object to some of the purposes to which the GMOs that are out there have been used. People say, well, they increase the use of herbicides. Uh, they encourage farmers to do what we call monoculture growing the same variety of everything all over the world. Those are valid questions, but they're not safety questions. I think they're very safe. I think if I could use 
GMOs to create a better flavored tomato, you'd be eating it today. Yeah. But I can't do that. Okay. Uh, it would cost me millions of dollars to go through the regulatory approval for it. And, and the university would never pay that kind of money. It, it, we would never get our investment back. Duly noted. Before I let you go, I have to know, what does your garden look like? Do you plant tomatoes? Squash? Right now, I have about 20 tomato plants in my garden. We just actually got the very first harvest of tomatoes just last week. Congrats. And so now I can have bruschetta every night for the next uh, month or so. <laughs> and uh, my basil is also doing very well. I don't eat a lot of raw tomatoes. The idea of picking up a tomato and biting into it myself, we do it only to evaluate them. And I honestly don't like just a raw, plain tomato. Plus, you have to eat them without salt if you're if you're evaluating. But I eat massive quantities of tomatoes. After we make a, we may, actually we make a marinara sauce from the bulk of our tomatoes, and we use it all winter. But eating a raw tomato by itself is like no. I've had too many of them, it, and too many bad ones. It doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> Well, Dr. Klee, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. I've learned so much Good. by what you've, you've shared with us, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. It was great. It was a lot of fun. That was Dr. Harry Klee, a horticultural scientist from the University of Florida. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, a family recipe from Tony D's, plus this classic. Olive oil, garlic, tiny bit of red pepper, and then we throw the tomatoes in and salt it after with basil. And that's your classic marinara. That's just the sailor sauce, buddy. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Tony D's in New London is one of my all-time favorite restaurants in the state. I'm always blown away every time I go there. Anthony D'Angelo immediately came to mind when I thought about chefs that I wanted to talk to about using tomatoes as a star ingredient. Anthony is the chef and owner of Tony D's. And when you own a restaurant, you do all the jobs. So apparently, he's head dishwasher too. We're joined right now by the head dishwasher from Tony D's out in New London, <laughs> Anthony D'Angelo. Uh, hey, those uh, glasses look like mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> Brother, thanks for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. Talk to me about just the love for tomatoes, especially with the cuisine that you guys do at Tony D's. So being an Italian restaurant, I mean, tomatoes is kind of your paramount here. It's behind the orchestra. So we have a dish uh, we call Tony's Tomatoes, which um, obviously came from my, well, my grandfather used to make it and my father had it as a kid. And it's just kind of an everyday thing that we have. We get them from this farm in Preston, the Presti farm. It was two older, two older guys, but now it's just Joe and he's 82, 84 years old. And this guy is out there <laughs> in July, 100 degrees, 90% humidity. He's out there picking this crazy amount of acres and their tomatoes are, they're awesome, man. They're fantastic. Yeah. Um, but the thing with the with the greenhouse tomatoes is the skin gets a little thick. So when you, me personally, I eat them like an apple. So when you bite into the tomato, it has a little bit of a leathery texture to the outside. You know, you kind of got to bite through it. A little more of a chew. In July, when they come around, it really thins out. The sun really thins it. And um, they're beautiful tomatoes. So the salad that we prepare, very simple, classic Italian. 
olive oil. It's a red wine vinaigrette. So it's olive oil, red wine vinegar, chopped basil, parsley, red onion, salt, pepper. And you just let it sit for about three hours and it's ready to go. Those onions probably pickle a little bit, don't they? Yeah, they pickle a little bit. Yep. They soften. They Yep. Very nice. So the other thing to watch out for when you make it is um, once the salt and the vinegar hits the tomato, the tomato is really going to bleed out that water. Yeah. So you want to make sure you taste it again before uh, serving it to your friends or they're going to say, this is a watery tomato. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a classic preparation here for a dish like this. Yeah. You see a lot of people now, they want to, they pour balsamic vinegar all over it. And to me, that almost kills the flavor. I mean, listen, it's delicious, but it kills the flavor of the tomato. Yeah. I think when you hit that red wine vinaigrette, on there, the, the two acids kind of level each other out a little bit. Yeah, plus balsamics, I mean, it has its own fruit flavor. So you're kind of, you know, you're making a fruit salad instead of just the tomato showing its its side of the story. Yeah. And do people come and like request the salad even when it's out of season now? Yes, of course, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and they're coming like the winners say, hey, I've got a salad. I'm like, dude, I'm not giving you these like plum California tomatoes. Like, we don't do that, man. You gotta, you gotta wait until June, July. <laughs> Listen, there's some great greenhouse tomatoes that are sold in grocery stores. And some grocery stores also, they'll sell local farm tomatoes, which I appreciate when they do that as well. But there's just nothing better. I mean, if you compare that tomato that we get, you know, around now to something that we can get in December, I mean, it's not even apples to apples anymore. No, not at all. They're cardboard. Yeah. There's nothing like the ones we get here, especially in, in New England. Our farmland is so great. I mean, you get the cold winter. Hopefully, it's been pretty mild. You know, it brings all the nutrition to the soil from the snow and the leaves. And I, we just have a great soil for growing that kind of thing. Our farms up here are, are bar none, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think it's some of the best food in the world. It comes from this I think area so, that too. we live in. Yeah, it, it's it's fantastic because there's so many out there. I mean, my wife, we must grow 17 varieties of tomatoes in our garden everything from and they have crazy names like german green stripe to kellogg's breakfast tomato to yep. they're just all over the board and for me when it's tomato season i know it because you start seeing those little orange sun golds showing up places man those are absolutely <laughs> delicious man i eat them like candy yeah so absolutely good, <laughs> so do you guys ever take any tomatoes and do like a tomato fresco like a fresh tomato sauce out of you know fresh tomatoes from the from the farm or absolutely so sometimes I mean, again, like when you're dealing with the farmers, we'll go there and they'll have a, a couple cases of tomatoes that they're not pretty enough to sell. Yeah. They grow too big and they split a little bit. So they'll give us boxes of those and we call them canners. We uh, wash them, core them. Uh, we'll blanch them in, in water so the skin peels. And then you take all the skins off. Sometimes you'll have to drain a little bit of the excess water, crush them all, olive oil, garlic, tiny bit of red pepper, and then we throw the tomatoes in and salt it after with basil. And that's your classic marinata. That's just the sailor sauce, The buddy. sailor sauce. That's all. <laughs> and just let it ride, right, for a couple hours. Is that how long you do it? Uh, no, nah, we don't cook it that long. Because what happens when you cook it with the, with the tomatoes, the longer you cook it, the more acidity is going to come out of it. You reduce the water, you inflate the acidity, and you want those tomatoes just nice, light. I, I just bring it just to about to a boil, bring it up to about 180 degrees, 190 degrees. And that's pretty much it. Because then when you saute it later, that's when you're, you're banging it down a little you're bit. Cooking it down a little bit, you know, do that reduction to it. Yeah, because you want to have enough so that the pasta absorbs it. And then it's going to tighten around like almost like a salad dressing would around lettuce. That's how you want your pasta. That is a really, really good explanation. Yeah. <laughs> you should think about doing radio. That was really good. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, I think a lot of times we all have those things where we make those tomato sauces that our grandma used to make, where it would be that pot of sauce on the stove that's cooking for the entire day. And I don't think all that's necessary. I mean, I'm sure, listen, grandma sauce is delicious. And yeah. No one's going to tell you. Different, yeah. But, you know, you don't have to do that. Yeah. If you get fresh tomatoes like that. You cut them up. You crush them down, let them cook on the stove, season them up a little bit. That's all you really need to do. Yeah, unless you're cooking down meat products, you know, because then you're trying to get the marrow out of the bones. 
But um, other than that, it's a it's a it's a quick, very simple process. Yeah, very very easy. Um, what about doing like those sauces with those little tiny sun golds, little tiny cherry tomatoes, where you just toss those tomatoes in there and let them kind of burst like a bursting yep. tomato sauce? You ever do any of those? Yeah, we do stuff like that with like um, we do scampies and yeah. stuff like that. You throw the tomato and just let it just kind of let it wilt. Yep, soften up. It almost like pops. Yeah, get the juice out. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. Or we roast them. Sometimes we we'll do a vegetable salad, olive oil, salt them, and then just let them roast until they soften up a bit, and then let them chill. Mix it with zucchini. Even serve them cold like yeah. that. You can take those tomatoes you get in season now. This is one of the things I do at my house. I used to blanch them lightly and do what's called a concasse if you want to be really chefy, which is where you take the skin off, and then throw them in a Ziploc bag and put them in the freezer. But you don't even have to do that anymore. You know what I used to do now is I take them and just put them on a sheet pan. Towards the end of the season, you know, like those late September ones, throw them on a sheet pan, a little bit of olive oil, a little garlic and salt, let them roast. And then I put them in a Ziploc bag and I freeze them. So mm -hmm. anytime I need fresh tomatoes like that, they're great to pull out. You know what else they're good for, Anthony? Is you take them and put them in a little like dish and just dip toasted bag out into it. It's so good. Oh, wow. What a move. Thanks so much for the tip, chef. That was Anthony D'Angelo, owner of Tony D's in New London. He also makes the fresh pasta in the shop next door. And he makes ice cream, too. You might want to try the cannoli ice cream at Tony D's Craft Creamery in downtown Niantic. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Talarski. Carmen Baskoff helped produce this episode as well. Our interns are Maisie Carvalho and Kelly Langevin. Thanks for listening, everybody. Enjoy those tomato sandwiches. See you next week. I'm going to go make a tomato sandwich right now. <laughs>